Good evening and welcome, everyone. My name is Kathleen McLean. I coordinate public programs here at the Art Gallery of Ontario, and I'm delighted to welcome you here tonight for Navigating a Gracious Cosmos. Um, tonight's talk, as you know, is presented in association with the exhibition Revealing the Early Renaissance Stories and Secrets in Florentine Art. The show is on view through June 16th, so if you haven't seen it, you still have time, and I'm sure you'll want to go see it again after tonight's talk. I'm going to introduce our two speakers, and they'll speak for about an hour. After their talk, we'll have time for Q&A for about a half an hour, wrapping up at 8.30. So, Dr. Gilles Monnier is a theologian and specialist in the thought of St. Thomas Aquinas. His area of expertise is a dialogue between religion and culture in the theology of St. Thomas. He's interested in Dante as a student of Aquinas. Dante studied philosophy and theology with one of Aquinas' pupils at the Dominican Church in Florence. And in particular, Gilles is interested in Dante's poems as expressions of his religious and spiritual experience. In addition to his work on Aquinas, Dr. Monnier is responsible for the spiritual and human formation of men and women preparing for service in the church and teaches at Regis College at the University of Toronto. Sasha Suda is the Assistant Curator of European Art at the AGO and Coordinating Curator of Revealing the Early Renaissance. So please join me in welcoming them tonight. Hi, everyone. Um, welcome. And I want to especially welcome Gilles Monjou, who is... Uh, not only a very uh, seasoned professor, very much you know, admired on the University of Toronto campus, but also my partner in crime here, uh, working on and interpreting our medieval holdings and also working together with me on this exhibition. And he works with us actually closely institutionally because, of course, much of the art that we have at the Art Gallery of Ontario, especially the historical art, is uh, Christian in in sort of nature, right? So this is something that is, can be a bit of a polarizing uh, thing today. And so it's really important for me, a, a medievalist and Renaissance art historian who's steeped in this tradition of art to maintain a conversation, dialogue with someone who's a, a very active member of not only an academic institution, but also uh, the Jesuits at Regis College uh, at U of T. And this talk came out of an early conversation that we had, and we're going to basically talk. I mean, this is a conversation that we've had many times before, and we're going to continue uh, having that conversation in front of all of you today in an effort to sort of understand something that the audience of this exhibition have been struggling with a little bit, uh, not only throughout the run of the show, but also that the AGO had uh, struggled with as we prepared for this show. And that is that uh, we want to help grasp the sort of intuition that modern uh, society tends to have that the sacred, the Christian in this case, and the secular are separate entities. And in fact, in the medieval and Renaissance period, they weren't. Uh, reality was suffused with religious meaning. And from an art historical point of view, I understand that because that, that happened because 
Europe, which today is built up of modern countries, France, Italy, Germany, was then not so. I mean, Florence, for example, was a city-state, and Siena was a city-state, and it was a very sort of uh, disparate group of these city-states that made up the country. And uh, the unifying, in fact, sort of body of governance was the church. So religious imagery and the Christian faith, which was the dominant faith at this time in terms of majority, was a common language that people spoke. So when we see uh, Christian imagery from the medieval and Renaissance period, this is contemporary parlance. This is a common language. This is something that people could use to talk to one another across borders and across cultures. So we're going to sort of work together kind of TED Talk style uh, to kind of go back and forth and talk about ideas in theology that were concurrent with stylistic changes, innovation, and sometimes uh, regression. Uh, and I say that word without judgment. And then at the end of our talk, we'll open up the floor to all of you and we can explore some of the perhaps areas that we haven't touched on and, and places of confusion that still might exist. So this exhibition is one made up of about 95 objects, panel paintings, manuscripts, uh, sculptures, stained glass, from Florence between the years 1300 to 1350. Florence is a city that's best known for its high Renaissance moment, that one that sort of is concurrent with the lives of Michelangelo and Leonardo, who come to Florence to study the artists that are fe featured in this show, to study the artists who brought to life, gave birth to the, the birth of the Renaissance, an introduction of realism, uh, three-dimensionality, perspective, the human experience in art. And so often the Florence of the early Renaissance is sort of forgotten because the hard stop of the show, 1348, is when the plague hits Florence. Much of its population dies and the city goes into hibernation. But before that moment, it is the hotbed for artistic innovation. And what we'll talk about is how that artistic innovation is absolutely interconnected with changes in, in faith and in a culture that's steeped in that faith. And so I'll just set a little bit of a historical picture for you um, that gives you a sense of why these changes happen culturally. And Gilles will uh, jump from there to connect them to uh, sort of faith culture, um, education, and so on. And then we'll move through some images, do some case studies, and hopefully uh, we'll keep you guys entertained and informed along the way. So 1252, the florin is introduced in Florence. The florin is the first guaranteed currency in Europe. What that means is, prior to the florin's introduction in 1252, there's many different currencies in use throughout Europe, in the various different areas of Europe, French-speaking Europe, German-speaking Europe, and so on. It wasn't uncommon for a monarch to shave off pieces of coins in his currency and remint new coins. So what you end up with is with a lot of inflation and a number of tumultuous economies throughout Europe. And as, you know, we're moving on in history, in order to underwrite much of the industry that's now growing out of 
a modernizing economy and, and society, there's a need for a guaranteed currency, one that's stable. So that when you buy five cows for 15 gold coins and sell them for 20, that you're actually making those five gold coins and not uh, selling them for 20 that are now worth what was worth five, you know, six months before. And so Florins, because they bring into use this guaranteed currency, becomes the first international banking city in Europe. And people are borrowing money from German-speaking Europe. It's underwriting major industry in the German-speaking lands of Europe, Northern Europe, French-speaking Europe, you name it. But of course, it's also underwriting great growth in industry in Florence itself. And this particular manuscript, the Specchio Umano, is a testament to that. Uh, what you have here are two cityscapes. On the left, you see the skyline of Siena. And on the right, you see the skyline of Florence. Uh, signature to the skyline is the baptistry and the tower from the Palazzo Vecchio. Uh, and of course, in front of that, the Porta Maggiore, the main gate. And what you have being pictured here is the poor forced out of Siena because there's not enough food, because the event being depicted is a moment during the famine of 1329, being welcomed to Florence uh, by the Florentines who are feeding the poor, who there aren't, isn't enough food for in Siena. And what's fascinating about that is that Florence probably during the famine didn't have as much grain as that to feed their neighbors. This is an image that paints Florence as superior to Siena, its great competitor, and the great sort of Italian city-state of the, I guess, late Middle Ages, I would say. And they're showing themselves as superior to them, but also generous. So this kind of ideal uh, neighbor, but also a little bit higher up on the ladder. And the owner of this book uh, was actually a grain merchant, Domenico Lenzi. And this grain merchant then is painting a picture of a city, his city, that he believes he's played an active role in taking to this next level, to this sort of new sort of peak of its success. And he's also painting himself, of course, in a pretty prime position as well, um, as one who is partially responsible for feeding the Florentines. And just think about Florence for a second. It's a city that's uh, surrounded by a number of hills. It doesn't have a ton of its own agricultural land. It has to take over land outside of Florence, other contados, that will feed this new city that's growing rapidly, its population is increasing. So this is also a symbol of Florence as it's growing outside of its, out of, outside of its walls and taking over surrounding territory. So it's, it's quite a strong image. And it's also a testament not only to new rich bankers in Florence and industrialists, this banking economy gave birth to great wool manufacturing industry in Florence, but a new middle class uh, that's built of merchants and of merchants like Domenico Lenzi, grain merchants, also shopkeepers, and a middle class that suddenly has the means to commission works of art themselves. And these works of art are things that they can use to express their faith in ways that they haven't been able to before. So, Gilles. The picture that uh, Sasha's just painted is not always as rosy as uh, the Specchio Umano would lead you to believe. Along with the wonderful success of Florence economically, uh, culturally, in, in, in its ability to, to foster this kind of new art, the growth of the city brings with it new challenges, new moral situations, new practical situations that hadn't existed before. Um, 
No one knows, for example, how to arrange a marriage in the city when it's so big. When you live in the country, you know what you do. My family introduces you to her family. We get to know each other while we're supervised by our mothers or grandmothers. We may or may not develop a relationship. If we do, then there's a contract of dowry. The traditions surrounding this practice are ages old. But in the city, I may not be with my family. Whether I'm a woman or a man, I may have come to the city on my own to find work in, as an apprentice or as, as a journeyman, as a member of a guild. And so all sorts of situations have to be invented. Solutions to practical situations, moral situations, social situations have to be invented from scratch. You have this whole problem of how do we continue to live out of certain values but, but at the same time find new ways to live out of those values. There's a problem of continuity and discontinuity in social and cultural and spiritual practice. When the church comes face to face with this kind of situation, could we have the next image? It really it responds with two kinds of solutions. The first solution is a spiritual one. We have here an image by Giotto of St. Francis of Assisi. And St. Francis is standing in tonight for the mystical and spiritual response to these new social and cultural shifts. If you remember the story of St. Francis, Francis is precisely the, the son of a wool merchant, a very successful cloth merchant, and uh, as he awakens to uh, the, the spiritual realities, the values that he wants to honor, he decides that he must break with his father's uh, uh, way of life. He uh, has that very dramatic moment in the public square in Assisi where he divests himself of all the clothing that he had on him because all of it was the fruit of his father's labor and he walks nude from his father to the bishop and commits himself to a way of life in the church. The bishop covers him with his mantle and then uh, Francis begins his, uh, his, his new way of life a way of life that he uh, understands to be motivated by a call from God. A call from God that uh, he has heard in the phrase, rebuild my church. Francis represents something that we find in many, many cultures around the world. Faced with social, cultural change, groups will give rise to spiritual figures who are cultural refounders. Spiritual figures who in their spiritual leadership, in the kind of the fullness of a rediscovery of, of, of values that are important, will be able from that spiritual experience to recraft a way of life, be a source of meaning in the new situation, and then teach that to others. And so Francis represents that spiritual response to the new challenges. And I'll just insert here that Francis is one of the founders of one of the begging orders that's popular at this time, right? So this continuity of values, which one has to consider 
in parallel with the visual culture of this day, this new visual material culture of Florence, which is quite the opposite. We know St. Francis, he wears this very plain uh, brown robe. He's known for, you know, his extreme sort of asceticism, this kind of not being connected to that material culture. But those people who uh, dedicate chapels and churches to this, to this saint are the very ones walking around in incredible clothing that they've either made out of textiles imported from the East at tremendous expense or had made in Florence using this sort of via this industry that has been underwritten by this incredible banking economy. So this sort of sense of discontinuity, sort of departing from values, is then sort of bridged by this continuity via this relatively contemporary saint who connects them to their tradition. So it's this kind of bridging that's always going on using these figures. Francis's way of life as a spiritual response really calls people back to certain values that he feels they are abandoning. And people respond to that very positively. But there is a second response, which we'll call an institutional response, that is, is uh, best understood in the rise of the university in the 13th century. And before we turn to this, I'll mention also that what's very incredible about this work is that people really want this, all these values that Francis represents to be palpable, to be understandable to them, to so that they can identify with it. You know, we think about medieval art. Uh, we think about versions of St. Francis that precede this by 100 years. They're flat, symmetrical. They don't reflect the everyday or, or real world. But here, Giotto paints a Francis that could be you know, you or I in that there's a body underneath that robe. You can see the light reflecting off of his left shadow. There's volume there. So there's an introduction of realism here that's really new for the Renaissance. You know, this isn't Michelangelo yet, but it's the first step towards Michelangelo. And, you know, Giotto is the first in the lineage towards Michelangelo, according to Giorgio Vasari, the great biographer of artists. But that shift in style is inherently connected to this spiritual uh, shift and, and, and sort of intuition that, that uh, Gilles describes here. The other piece of this turn to realism is grounded in the rise of the medieval university. So you have here an image of uh, Christ and the Virgin enthroned, attended by 17 Dominican saints. Um, the reason I wanted the Dominicans in front of us is that their response is very much tied to the university. So where Francis's way of life is a kind of prophetic stance over against culture, the changes in culture. The Dominicans and the university represent an engagement with culture. They, are, they want to get in there and have a conversation, a dialogue between the values that uh, they're concerned about and the emerging culture. And so the Dominicans are known for their teaching and for their preaching, their engagement of the culture uh, with the religious values. You have um, here many uh, Dominicans who are actually teaching saints, but let's, let's have the, um, the close-up that goes with it. Uh, this is uh, the Virgin and Christ. It's a detail of them. I want you to focus your attention on the, um, on the globe that Christ is holding. It's a classic representation of Christ. So... 
in, in ancient icons and in uh, medieval art, you will often see Christ represented as ruler of the world with a scepter and with a globe that represents the universe. The co- and so... The cosmos. The cosmos. <laughs> There's your cosmos. But what's interesting about the image here is that that globe has a, a, a very interesting detail in it. It's not a map of the world. It's not the typical smooth representation of the orb of the cosmos. It's a city. And as Sasha and I have been talking about this, we think that it's an, it's, it is a, a, an allusion to Florence itself. There are some elements that, that we think you can uh, assign as, as elements of Florence in this image. Well, it's classic sort of ambiguity where you conflate something secular and something sacred where you can't get in too much trouble for doing it. Uh, you have the red <laughs> roofs and the, and the white you know, stone walls. This could be Florence, it could be Jerusalem, you know, it could be the new Rome, um, but it's certainly in this case, uh, it's n- no mistake that it could easily be Florence. And so Florence here is putting itself at the center of the cosmos. So it's trying to understand its position within this cosmos in context of everything changing within that cosmos. So it's a really sort of, we talk about humanism and the birth of humanism. This is, you know, Florence trying to understand its place as the center of the cosmic sort of universe. I mean, that's quite a bold statement for Florence, uh, positioning itself right at the center there. And, and what it leads to is a huge shift in religious meaning. So prior to this day, the notion of the city of God as a religious notion is a metaphor for what God will do to reestablish justice and right relationship and peace in the fullness of time. And it is something that can be represented in the present mainly by an institution like a monastery. A monastery set apart from the world where there's a strict hierarchy, where relationships are clearly defined, where there is a rhythm to the day of prayer and work, where everything is structured, but also set apart. So the religious, the city of God is a, is, is a symbol that is not quite in my everyday life. I have to go to the monastery to experience the city of God. The effect of this is to say, we can and should live the city of God as Florence. We can and should try to engage these shifts in our culture and make something just and peaceful and right with them before God. So the university, the Dominicans, this representation of Florence represents this shift of engagement with the culture in order to uh, establish religious meaning, religious value in the everyday life of the people. The university, of course, is the institution that's going to spread education, classical education, beyond the clergy to the ordinary folks so that somebody uh, uh, can go to the university, maybe never get to the study of theology, but along the way acquire uh, an understanding of the classics, acquire an understanding of the liberal arts, and come out as a very well-educated secretary 
who can serve a lord or a city and, 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 and contribute to the good order of society. And so there's a sense here, I mean, I'll just rewind back one. When, you know, one first sees this image, it feels very medieval, it's sort of plainer. Uh, there's this group of saints with their attributes, as somebody pointed out to me yesterday. Uh, there's an incredible hand here floating above this saint, sort of dismembered hand. That's his attribute, so it looks kind of otherworldly. But there's also these incredible contemporary touches to this. I mean, the pastel-colored marble of the stairs behind them, that great uh, mosaics that are inlaid into the stairs. I mean, there's some great sort of everyday, luxurious material culture that's represented here that really shows that, you know, I hesitate to say it, but this kind of secularization of sacred imagery. It's a really bold step. We're not quite at the point that the two are separate. But there's an incredible uh, power here, empowerment of the person who commissions this work and the artist working on it to input the everyday in a way that makes this particular subject matter make much more sense to the patron and also help the patron make sense of the experience they're having on earth at that time. So now we've given you the setup. Here's the first case study, Dante. So... Let me begin by giving you some details of Dante's uh, early life. At the age of 12, Dante meets for the first time a young woman named Beatrice. And even at the age of 12, in that meeting of Beatrice, something profound happens to him. He doesn't understand it, but he is profoundly moved by the sight of Beatrice. And he spends the next six years trying to make sense of this experience and of his ongoing meetings with Beatrice by writing classical courtly love style poetry. And he even makes a name for himself in the city as a poet doing this kind of love poetry, public love poetry, that is his attempt to understand what the heck happened when I met Beatrice. When Beatrice comes to the age of 18, she dies. And Dante is left absolutely bereft. And he understands that something is going on inside of him that is beyond merely romantic love. It's the first insight he has when he loses her that something beyond romantic love has happened to him and has been moving through him. And so he does something radically new that hasn't been done before in, uh, uh, in poetry and in, in the interpretation of poetry at this time. Instead of doing what the grammarians do in the university, which is to comment on the classics. So when you studied literature... In university, you took the great classic poems, Ovid, and you, you, you commented on them. You did lexio, and you had a teacher who showed you how to read and interpret the classics. Dante is going to take those techniques, and instead of applying them to the classics, he's going to apply them to his own poetry. And he's going to try to use these techniques of interpretation and textual literary analysis 
to understand what has been happening to me. The results of this are the Vita Nuova. Vita Nuova is a short work where Dante gives you one of his poems and he says, here's what I think it means. And he applies all the techniques of uh, medieval grammar and rhetoric to the task of literary analysis, using the literary analysis to try to understand his own interior experience. Why was I moved in this way? He comes to the end of the Vita Nuova and he, and he says, I haven't gotten very far. I don't quite know what happened, but at this point in my life, I've now discovered a new lady. And this new lady now fascinates me. Well, this new lady is philosophy. Dante has begun to take lectures in philosophy and theology at the Dominican Church in Florence. As, as mentioned in, in, in the introduction, uh, he studies actually with the pupil of St. Thomas Aquinas. And, and he just becomes fascinated with the power of philosophy and theology to explain the cosmos, to explain the world. And so he forgets Beatrice for a time. He forgets her so effectively that his second major work, the Convivio, is an attempt to capture his interior life through philosophy and theology without any reference to Beatrice. And so the Convivio is this kind of classic allegory of the marriage of learning and virtue. He never finishes. He gets through, I think, uh, the discussion of the first six liberal arts, and then he says, this is crazy, this is not working, this is not doing it. And at the end of the convivio, he turns to a new form of work. And here we see the creativity that is born in this period. This is the time when he begins to write the Divine Comedy. Can we have the close-up? What happens at the end of his time of studies of philosophy and theology is that his initial experience with Beatrice returns with a vengeance. But now he is able to identify the experience as a religious one. He realizes that in meeting Beatrice, what profoundly moved him was her beauty, but her beauty and her goodness as a revelation of God in his daily life. And in order to, with, with that insight, he decides to explore his, his experience, his religious experience of Beatrice through a new poetic form, the Divine Comedy, where he's going to use, on the one hand, a classic form, the journey through hell, purgatory, and heaven, which captures the, the, the path of the spiritual life through uh, purification, enlightenment to communion, but instead of giving you that journey in its classic form, using the scriptures, using classical learning, everything's going to be about Beatrice. Beatrice is going to be his guide. And so we have this lovely representation here. At the, at the, uh, it's a page from the uh, Divine Comedy, a manuscript page from the Divine Comedy, where we see precisely Dante finally listening to Beatrice who teaches him about God. 
No one would have dared do this in the Middle Ages. The idea that my personal, secular, if you will, encounter with someone could be the vehicle of spiritual and religious experience is completely new. And it emerges from the kind of context that we were just discussing. And so I think what's important to note here, of course, is that the result of this new creative product, let's say the Divine Comedy, this poem is, that there was no language or no sort of structure to encapsulate this experience for him that he needed to write something new. What's interesting is he writes it. It's the first sort of non-Latin expression of this kind. This is the birth of modern literature. He writes it in the Italian vernacular so that everyone can read it. And not only is everyone reading it, but he's also releasing it piece by piece as he writes it. So people have a chance to spend the time with it, and they're memorizing it. I mean, it's a bit apocryphal, but people are reciting it in the streets. It's something that they're so taken with that there's this real sort of, let's say, earthly experience, which is parallels perhaps experience in their own life, that has found this expression and they identify with it and they run with it. So yeah, Dante travels through this mystical journey from basically through the depths of hell, purgatory up to heaven. This is clearly modeled on the salvation narrative with which, in which everyone's living in the sort of modeling their lives on Christ. But it's from the perspective of someone who's a contemporary of theirs. I mean, Dante's alive. He's also quite notorious. In writing this, it wasn't just about his love of Beatrice, but it was also a scathing critique of everything that's going on in Florence at the time. So there's this really pretty picture of lots of people who are getting quite wealthy and new merchants and lots of great stuff going on. But of course, there's incredible shift in terms of the politics. Uh, let's say kind of, it's a little early for this, but sort of a Machiavellian politics playing out in Florence. And so, in fact, Dante goes into exile and writes much of the Divine Comedy outside of Florence, sort of this commentary on Florence outside of Florence. But then he dies, and it's funny, not soon thereafter, they erect a statue of him, so they kind of take him back. <laughs> and everyone has a copy of this book, and they say, well, listen, uh, it's great that we have the poem, but visual expression is also important. I mean, you see it on the outside of buildings, churches, on the inside of churches. Pa art patronage is huge, visual art patronage. So they also bring this poem to artists. And they say, look, we really need this illustrated. And now Dante's not around. He obviously hasn't illustrated the book. He's not a sort of a, an illustrator of his poems as well. And people come to artists for the first time, and they say, invent the imagery here with us. And so everything that sort of precedes this is either modeled on previous iconography. Certainly, St. Francis has, you see his body underneath, so it's innovated, this way you paint Francis. But the way sort of wearing what he's wearing, the symbol is sort of the same over time. And they, this time they're inventing all new imagery to bring to visual life this text that's brand new. So Dante not only gives birth to a modern literature in writing the comedy, but he gives artists license to invent wholly new imagery to go along with that, with that text. So it's a really fascinating moment because he gives more agency to artists and to patrons than they've had before, creating a new sort of uh, visual lexicon. What you see here is not unlike what Francis does. 
a religious, a spiritual experience is giving rise to a new social and cultural creativity that feels it can both reconcile certain values but also critique others. This engagement with culture, you see faith giving rise to a creativity that is trying to make sense of the situation um, by pushing Dante, pushing the artists to new expressions, to new ways of reconciling or critiquing the reality around them. And what's interesting about that is that this new rise of, of, of creativity forces certain changes in artistic practice. So there's people who want art. It's an unprecedented demand for art in this period. And so it means it's an unprecedented market demand for art produced by artists in workshops. So at this moment, to meet this demand for art, for this new sort of visual expression, artists have to change the way that they work wholly just to be able to fill these orders. Because let's not forget sort of the second half of all of what we're saying is that there are cultural economic implications of all these changes. So artists have to set up workshops. And here we see a pretty fantastic image from the Prado in Madrid that you'll see upstairs in the galleries. And you see this kind of idealized image of an artist's workshop in, uh, right in the, in the thick of things. At the center is Saint Eloy, the patron saint of blacksmiths or goldsmiths. And let's say he's the master of the workshop, uh, this goldsmith's workshop. He's working on a pretty fab, uh, it looks like saddle, gold saddle. Uh, at the center there, and he's surrounded by workshop assistants that are, you know, completing other parts of what it seems to be they're pretty good at, are gold chains. They're hanging everywhere in the workshop. And you can see that they're collaborating together to make these things happen. What's interesting about it, too, is the workshop fronts onto the street. And it's part of the city fabric. It's part of, clearly, the day-to-day -day transactional uh, happenings in the city. And you can see on the other side of the workshop window are the patrons who are either waiting to order something, to pick something up, to negotiate. And this image then is painted by an artist and it's meant to show how even when artists responded to this economic uh, demand for what they made, they were trying to do so in an idealized way, that they were modeling their own behavior on sort of this cosmos that they were trying to navigate. We're all working together, we're part of this world, whether it be spiritual or economic, that's sort of in a happy balance and, and equals sort of a good life together. Notice that the workshop is doing all sorts of things at once without any kind of distinction. So on the far right, on my far, or your far right, uh, we see someone working on a crucifix next to St. Eloy, who's actually working on the saddle. There's a mixture here of the religious and the earthly meaning in the one workshop, and this is normal. This is what we do. We do all these things, and they're all related. And so they're kind of normalizing, again, this mixture between sacred and secular, bridging the gap between the earthly and ethereal. And it's quite subtle, but it's this attempt, you know, to bring the two together which it takes about 150 years to feel that there's any separation there. So again, this kind of idea that the two live separate lives in this period is tough to imagine, but you can see what a bold step it is for people to introduce these two things into conversation and dialogue in paintings quite uh, fluently. We're precisely noticing this negotiation or this navigation of this new cosmos. 
So of course, out of that kind of idealized kind of world partnership, everyone seems to be responding well, it's all in balance. There's actually a pretty deep-seated, I would say, anxiety. Um, and there's an urgency to do so. I, you know, I want to underscore that this doesn't happen naturally, that people really feel this urgency. So compare what St. Francis was wearing to what the people in this fresco are wearing. And I'll just mention briefly that this fresco is in the Museo Bigelow, which is just off the Piazza del Duomo, the cathedral square in Florence. And I encourage you all to go. It's kind of hard to find, but it's behind a ticket wicket the gallery that holds this, where you buy you know, day tickets to different museums just off of the Piazza del Duomo. And you can sort of scoot right behind the ticket counter. They won't tell you to do that because they're too busy selling tickets. But there's this absolutely fabulous fresco back there. And I think what it does for me is it shows these incredibly garbed Florentine people on either side of the Madonna of Misericordia here, men on the left, women on the right. I, you know, I challenge you to find two people that are wearing the same thing. I mean, this is really representation of the incredible breadth of uh, import, export, textile production in Florence at this time. And they look with pretty intense urgency up to the Madonna. They're, they really want her. They don't have control over all these changes that is happening, but they really want her to help them navigate this changing world. And what's fascinating to me about it is that below her and in between these two groups of people is the city. And Florence, I mean, we think of Florence again as, as having its heyday in the 15th century, but this idea of Florentine civic pride is born out of this moment because they're not just worried about themselves um, as individuals, but they're worried about themselves as Florentine people and their city and how do they take their city with them as they move forward um, in time and move into this trans through this transition into the future. And so I love this image of Florence, and it's too bad it's a little bit damaged. Frescoes tend to suffer most over time. But it's a great place to go and see a very, very early cityscape of Florence, even better than the one from the Specchio Mano. And so what we'd like to do as we come to a close is just give you a few case studies uh, of, of the art itself in more detail. So let's start with a page again from uh, uh, the illumination of the uh, Divine Comedy. This is uh, Dante and Virgil. This is towards the end of, the, uh, of hell, uh, just before uh, Dante and Virgil go down to the Lake of Ice where they see uh, the devil. Uh, they're in the last, last circle before they go there, and they're witnessing Count Ugolino devouring Archbishop Ruggieri. It's a pretty, I mean, this is a really visceral Im image, and for those of you who have seen the show already, you'll notice that there's a lot of pretty violent imagery in the show, including martyrdoms. I mean, one of my favorites is in the Ladario room where you see Bartholomew being flayed. Um, Bartholomew's famous because he went on mission to India. Uh, he was then martyred for uh, converting someone and flayed. And then there's another image of him preaching with his skin hanging off of him. So, I mean, this, the sort of, this visceral imagery is also an interesting expression of that anxiety. It's part of the realism. And here the realism is being expressed in a very interesting way. The classical way, classical medieval way of representing uh, a, a vice. So, th so in, in, the, 
In hell, of course, you're encountering all of the classic vices. Um, and, and for the moment, for some reason, I should have noted it, uh, the particular vice that we're facing, I can't remember. But um, the, the medieval way of doing it would be to say, to personify the virtue or the vice that you're talking about. But you would, have to, you would do it in the abstract. You wouldn't uh, uh, try to make the, the vice a real person. You would just give them some attributes where you could recognize the, the, this, oh, this is, this is anger, or this is betrayal, or this is whatever. Uh, Dante, in the Divine Comedy, doesn't go in that direction. Instead, he portrays real people, real historical figures, people he knows as the personifications of the vices in hell. Hence being expelled from the city, I would say. (laughs) (laughs) So a lot of commentators assume that he's settling scores when he does that. So you'll read a lot of commentators on on Dante, particularly on on hell, uh, say, oh, he's just settling political scores. There's something much more profound going on here. He is saying, through his poem... These vices and virtues are happening in real life. Our situation, our social, cultural, personal situation is a place where we encounter these realities and these realities teach us about goodness, about virtue, about vice. That's where the divine is laboring to transform us. That's where religious and moral meaning is to be found, is out there, not in some otherworldly realm, but in our very own experience. And so Count Ugolino uh, is devouring Archbishop Ruggieri because everybody knows their story. Everybody knows what the Archbishop did to the Count and that they're forever tied to each other in this vice. And so when he puts them in there, people will get it right away. And they will be able to draw religious and moral meaning from the consequences of the enmity between Ruggiero and Ugolino, Ruggieri and Ugolino. And I'll, I'll mention that Pacino de Bonaguida, who's the artist that you see here, is one of the artist's big heroes. You see his name over and over and over again throughout the show. Was actually an artist that was more or less forgotten in the history of art. Because when Vasari in the 16th century writes the biographies of the artists, He says, well, the only one worth remembering is Giotto because he's the first in the lineage towards Michelangelo. So all the artists who can be seen as quite, you know, quite embedded in a medieval tradition, you know, it's flat. Pacino, by the way, is a terrible painter of hands. I call him spaghetti hand man. Um, Dottie, you'll see upstairs, is a great hand guy. Uh, Pacino's less interested in this sort of visual naturalism, but he's interested in literary realism, the sort of like really kind of absolutely precise according to history realism. So upstairs, for example, you'll find that there's a really medieval-looking crucifixion, right? Again, people are flat, bold fields of color. You won't mistake anyone for a real person, but the sky is black, And it's the first time that a painter paints the crucifixion according to the gospel's uh, written account, which says that when Christ is dying, the sky turns black. So it's a different, it's a literalism that is sort of really sits parallel with this notion of visual realism. So there's different artists doing things differently. Those are reflections of 
different uh, stylistic trajectories for sure, but those styles are really reflections of what different patrons wanted out of the art they had, the different ways they used the art, the different things they were looking for in that art. So the medieval, which I'm a proponent of if you haven't noticed, <laughs> thrives alongside the Renaissance here, and that's what I think makes Florence really rich at this moment. So Giotto wasn't painting these things happening, and Pacino had the gall to do that, but didn't have the nerve, I guess, or you know, didn't have the impetus to paint this three-dimensional or monumental volumetric figure. Let me just pick that up because I think it's a very, very important point. Pacino is not afraid to represent real people who could go after him or their families could go after him. Giotto opts for the safer social route but the more experimental artistic route. But both of them are experimenting with trying to articulate what this new moment is doing spiritually, socially, culturally in Florence. I think Pacino is one of the only artists in the show that has a signed work. You'll notice there's a huge altarpiece. It's the big second sight line in the room dedicated to devotion. Uh, lots of gold. You can't miss it. And he's actually signed under the central panel of that altarpiece. So there's definitely the notion that this is the beginning again of the Renaissance, of an artist with agency and identity, a uh, real identity, and he, being hired for being who he is. He's not, you know, a lone monk working in a monastery making something for his own use. He's an artist producing uh, and getting paid and part of the economy. And, of course, also part of this Christian faith, there are many different, I'm sure, levels of, of practice that they may have been part of, but... Pacino, I, I sometimes feel like he's a bit of a mystic, uh, but the point is that they actually become self-aware of themselves as artists, right? As creators in this world, as creators of new imagery. They've created new imagery for the Divine Comedy. And this sense of agency and self-awareness is really fascinating because a, dis a discovery that was made in the course of the show by one of the research assistants on the show named Brian Keane at the Getty um, really brings this uh, notion of self-awareness and agency to life. You'll see in the left-hand margin of this leaf from a Bible on view up in the galleries that there's a really unusual figure um, in a red cap, a blue sort of uh, cope with a red collar, is, where, is holding a compass. And he's pointing that compass towards an initial that is filled with an image of the story of creation. So this is the opening of the Bible, Genesis. There are a few details from this that I love. For example, the ease with which Adam gives birth to Eve, jumping out of his ribs. I kind of always think that's, there has to be, that has to be a little bit of an inside joke on the part of the artist because he's really lounging there. <laughs> and she sort of jumps up to the service of God, which is it's just a kind of a wild image. It's a little bit, you know, proto-feminist, if you ask me. Um, and then, of course, surrounded by all the, you know, the, the spoils of creation and topped by God, the creator of all of this, right? It's a beautiful image, lots of gold. It's really compelling. But often, you'll see God as creator holding a compass. So it's very strange that you'd see a figure in the margin who's clearly not God pointing a compass at God. And Brian Keane has suggested that, in fact, this figure is the artist holding the compass and equating himself 
as creator of the visual arts with God the creator. So this, again, this conflation is, is pretty bold and pretty strong. I think we're going to move on to the next one and build on this notion of self-awareness by showing how that self-awareness is also part of the popular awareness. So here you have a page from the Laudario. Um, the Laudario, for those of you who haven't seen the show yet, is uh, a collection of songs that were used by uh, the Compania di Sant'Agnese, which is a, a, a group of lay people who gather together to pray together um, and who pray together in song. And the music they're using for their song is not the traditional church music, it's not chant, but rather they've picked up the popular folk tunes of the day and put religious words to them. So they are getting together on a regular basis to sing, pray together without the, the, the uh, presence of clergy and, and they've produced these songs and collected them in the Laudario and then have paid for a beautiful edition of, the, of, of this songbook uh, that will kind of memorialize this reality in their lives. What you see here is precisely an expression of that awareness of themselves as religious without mediation from clergy. They are, we see them portrayed in the upper part of the page here, praying before the instruments of the crucifixion and the passion. And they're singing. You see them singing. There's something wonderfully self-aware about that representation. This is who we are, and they're telling the world. This is who we are, this is what we do, and we have on our own this relationship with God. We have on our own this practice of, of developing and deepening our spiritual life. Here we are. You can do it too. And there, I mean, I feel there's something palpable there about this urgency, again, that they're trying to get as close to the instruments of the passion. These are the things that were used to torture Christ uh, in advance of and during the crucifixion. So this idea of, again, identifying with his pain and of his human nature, of bringing him as close to their own experience as they possibly can, which is wonderful. And, and when you go to the show and see the other pages from this book, you'll notice that there is something really true to what Gilles says about not mediating it through the church. They're taking control of their faith and defining it visually themselves because there are references in this book to alchemy and to science. There's a great image of Christ sitting on a throne that's typically a rainbow. That's how iconography always had it. But in this book, it's a prism. And at this time, there's a conversation about whether color is actually has substance or if it's just refracted light. So that's sort of a, a sort of allusion to scientific inquiry, which is uh, sort of unprecedented and really interesting for this moment. So this book is a great way to explore not only their faith, but the different things they were interested in, the different things they explored when they got together. This was a group of people who got together at their local church on the other side of the Arno. Uh, the side uh, on the other side of the bridge from the Duomo, and they got to do things their way. They organized each other's funerals and celebrations. I mean, this is a really fascinating group of people with diverse interests. I think we should probably skip the next one completely, Sasha, and go immediately to uh, the, the the. I think we have time. The, do we have time? Yeah, we have time. Okay, all right. So very good. This is Pentecost. 
So this, this is Pentecost, and I think this is where Giotto shows uh, his mastery at storytelling. And it's, again, when you conflate the two worlds, the earthly and the ethereal, you get the real sense of a story being told in a new way because it's happening in real time. It's happening in time on Earth that the viewer can relate to and not in, in another time in sort of an unrelatable way. For example, in the Middle Ages, you'd often see one painting that has the same figure in a single image doing 12 different things. Here, you know, one image per event, you know, sort of the birth of the graphic novel in a way I think of. And the Pentecost is sort of this miraculous moment, of course, the dove flies in, grants them the ability to speak, the apostles the ability to speak to one another in foreign tongues, and they're not just accepting this as one might in medieval Pentecost scene, but they're reacting the same way that we as subjective viewers of this might be reacting, like that's kind of crazy that that's happening. And this connection between their reaction and our reaction is then doubled by the fact that we think these two guys could just open the door and let us in. So again, bringing us, inviting us into their experience and into their world. So, you know, yes, it's this kind of a Florentine space with this coffered ceiling and beautiful mosaic detail on the outside, but that space is one where a miracle is happening and we're part of it. So similarly, uh, I just want to underscore that it's really the patron who, de who decides this. And this is one of the more modest objects in the show, but I think it underscores what's key to all of this. It was once part of this altarpiece, and in the 15th century, the altarpiece was altered in that uh, somebody came with a saw. And when you see how thick these pieces of wood are, I mean, it's a real conscious decision to saw that pinnacle off the top of it. So you can see the rest of the altarpiece still in Santa Croce in the Baroncelli Chapel. Um, but after it was sawed off, they put this kind of bizarre classicizing frame around it in the 15th century. And I'll let Gilles talk a little about that in a second, but I want to point out what's going on here. Uh, God the Father holds open a book. The letters you see are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet, Alpha and Omega. Um, symbolizes that God's the creator of everything from beginning to end. Uh, that Christ represents everything from beginning to end, one of the great mysteries of the Christian faith. And in his other hand, he holds a branch, symbol of the tree of life, Christ's incarnation, the other great mystery of the Christian faith. And he's surrounded here by six angels. Four of them shield their eyes from the radiance that he emits. Clearly, he's very bright. And then two of them have lenses. Are they sunglasses? Clearly, there's something they're looking through to make more legible these mysteries. And so this notion that uh, this at the pinnacle of an altarpiece represents that through art you can search for a more objective truth is something that's really, I think, seminal to the way people are thinking about art as a tool to help them decipher these mysteries and understand them better. So why did that not last? Why did that pinnacle get sawn off? Why is it no longer obvious to us that faith and reason can engage each other in this way and lead to a creative explosion of the kind that we see in this show? In the 15th century, you have the beginnings of uh, what will eventually lead to the Protestant Reformation, the wars of religion. All of a sudden, religion 
is no longer the source of common meaning, common value. It's no longer the common language. It becomes a tool of the nation states. A ruler can threaten the unity of Europe by threatening to remove his emerging nation state from that unity by changing religion. And so people's experience of faith and reason working together is, is, receives a, a, a blow from which Europe, in fact, will not recover. And the sacred and the secular become divorced. That ability to search, search for God through that unity of, of sacred and secular is no longer possible, at least culturally. I mean, of course, it's possible in principle, but it is no longer a resource for European culture. And if we can have the last image. I like the animation. <laughs> we thought we would leave you with this image because it really does celebrate what it is that the Florentines thought they were doing. This is the Tree of Life, and uh, it's, it's again by Pacino di Bonaguida. The Tree of Life is a representation of all of the mysteries of how God has labored in sacred history and how all of these things are related to Christ. And so you have representations all up and down this tree of the prophets, of uh, the great leaders of Israel, all the different ways in which God has intervened for the good of humanity in history. But at the bottom, you see contemporary figures. You see monks and nuns. You see people of the day who are being included in that history. And I think that's a wonderful way of capturing what the Florentines thought they were doing. They were narrating themselves back into a sacred history as a way of navigating this gracious cosmos that they were discovering in a whole new way. I think that's a great place to stop. So thanks, everyone, and let's open it up to questions. Thanks, um, Jill and Tasha. We have a microphone for questions, so if you'd like to ask one, just wave at me, and uh, I'll trot over. Okay, we have one. And, and please, we just invite any questions, if it's about specific works in the show. Um, we're opening it up to all sorts of... Can you explain the nest at the top of the tree? Um, I can't see it very clearly, but I believe that is a pelican uh, piercing his breast. This is a classic image of, of Christ's passion. So, so the symbol works something like this. Uh, classical learning believed that the pelican, as a bird, fed her young with her own blood. That unlike other, other animals who might feed their young milk or regurgitated food, like, like other birds, she would pierce her own breasts and, and the young would suckle her blood. That becomes, in the Middle Ages, a symbol of Christ's passion. Christ understood as a motherly figure, in fact, not as a, a male figure, but as a motherly figure uh, whose passion is God 
is, is, is God in Christ offering his blood for the life of his brothers and sisters. And although I haven't looked at the image that closely because I, I wasn't paying attention to that particular symbol, I think that's what's going on, and it is a reference to the pelican. So again, Christ in his passion, giving life. Please. To refer to the uh, point of the altar, uh, you were saying that shows a blending of secular and sacred, but is that not a sacred image? It is a reference to that, yes. Well, the representation of it is through this lens, right? So it's, 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 uh, they're looking through a lens, which is, of course, the great achievement of, of the day. The, the, you know, the, the, so, so the glass darkly is actually represented through uh, a scientific achievement of the day. And this idea that you're, you need to, to look through a lens to see something that you should just believe, you know, that you're searching for something or... That you can actually probe this. Yeah, is, is completely unprecedented. I mean, it's totally separate from the scholasticism that preceded this sort of humanist moment. The notion of inquiry at all and in, in sort of reason here, objectivity, is, is unprecedented. Yes, please. Thank you. We were fortunate enough to be here on the Saturday afternoon when Lionheart was here from New York singing uh, the music that we had just seen on the wall. Um, it was quite a wonderful event. Would you care to share more with us about the, the, the music? Um, you mean in just, the sense just, of the difference with, with church music? Or? Yes, or just elaborate more on the, um, um, the content of it. Um, and also, I wondered if there were a guild involved, one of the guilds involved with the whole uh, reproduction of it or the, 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 the transcribing of it. It's one thing to, 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 to uh, remember it orally, but then to have it written down as something else. My understanding, and I'll, I'll, Sasha will probably be able to answer this better than I can, uh, my understanding is that there were two versions, two, two versions of the Laudarios. There was, if you will, the Pew version, <laughs> what you used for yourself, which was just uh, an inexpensive transcription. And then there was this, th this beautiful edition, which was really for display. Um, so you brought it out on big feast days, you had it in front of the group as they sang, but everybody had their own sort of text. Um, what could I say about the music? I think a couple of things. So chant at this time is becoming, plain chant is becoming more complex and more difficult. It, we're seeing um, the emergence of uh, some pretty uh, interesting experiments in polyphony and, and harmony and... and it, it, it's becoming more and more specialized so that uh, even in, in the act of worship at, at, a, at a Eucharist, at a Mass, you need a professional choir. You know, even the clergy can't sing the parts of the, of the liturgy that have to be sung. You, you need a, a special isolated choir. So, so the experience of prayer through music in the regular worship is becoming, if you will, more and more apart, professionalized and apart. 
What you have here is a choice to take music that I know, music that I grew up with, you know, music that I sang as a child that had secular words to it, but now I'm going to, and music that I enjoy and delight in. You know, if you, if you, listen, if you listen to Lionheart, there, there's a certain joy and movement in, in the music that you don't often think of as related to church song. And then I'm going to put religious words that express my own delight and my own praise, not professional praise. And so it's a very distinct kind of musical expression. And I will mention that one other big difference there is that the Ladario is in the vernacular. Yes, so it's not in Latin. It's not in Latin. So when we had Lionheart come in to sing, that, uh, that partnership with them was actually much sort of longer in the making because they actually came in at the beginning to transcribe the music from the surviving pages. And so when you're in the space, you'll see a number of really beautifully illuminated pages. But of course, that book was cut up in the 18th century and they threw out many of the pages that don't have paintings on them. So you would have a page like this that's illuminated. It's the beginning of the Feast of the True Cross the right side of the book, when you had it open, would have music. You turn the page, it'd be music, music. You turn the page again, and there might be the start of the next hymn. And the hymns were organized according to the calendar of feast days. And so, uh, of course, Lionheart didn't have the whole book to work from, only the surviving pages that are painted. And so what they were able to do is use the backs of the surviving pages, so that would give them the opportunity to see the last uh, the last notation from the previous hymn. And then fortunately, two other Ladarios survived from this time that have a very similar repertoire. And so they were able to sort of mix the two together. It's not profoundly different, this one. But one of the members of Lionheart said to me, like, it's, we go and perform this music, uh, and people, if musicologists are in the audience, they often get in a big fight with us because they say, well, you're, you're mispronouncing the vernacular because it actually should be like this. So even, um, you know, even though it's this sort of classic Ladario repertoire, there are these little touches that reflect either you know, the, their, the way that they sang this notation, the way they understood the notation themselves as a group, or also, you know, the way they spoke the vernacular in that particular community, which would vary. And so it's a, it's a pretty fascinating book because it really reflects the way they talked, the way they related to one another and what they talked about. And so uh, hopefully that answers your question a little bit. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, again, the Laudario as an example of the negotiation uh, between the artist and the client uh, or end user, whether it's the church or an individual group such as the end one. User, end. End, you, sorry, <laughs> end like user, end. I like that. Sorry. I like that. Um, as, as to what the imagery was going to be, I mean, obviously there's going to be a very strong religious component. What, how was that going to be represented? Who chose it, and how how did the secular group, I guess, if you want to call it that, uh, what 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 made them happy about it? So, so for the Ladario, did the artist decide that this initial was going to show the the elements of the Passion of Christ, 
or, or did he negotiate or she negotiate with the group, or did the group say, this is what we want in this particular instance? I mean, it, obviously it's going to be all of those things, I guess, but... So I think one of the... It's a really good question, because it points to one of the outstanding questions in the show um, that I wish we could have done better in the com- prospect, in the sort of planning of the show, is understand the patron better. Unfortunately, archives are so far and few between from this period, so we don't have a lot of contracts. We just don't know what people wanted. Manuscripts tend to be helpful in that regard because sometimes instructions survive in the margins. Uh, but often with luxury books like this, the trace of those instructions are scraped out. And so we just don't understand. What I'll tell you generally what we think about artists at this time is that they didn't really get to make many decisions at all. I mean, the decision-making starts first and foremost with materials because it's about, I mean, the cost of the artist is, is one thing, but the cost of the materials is probably tenfold. Parchment is, of course, animal skin scraped down, stretched, prepared, and then painted. So you're already involving like three guilds in the process of preparing the parchment. And then you have the person who's making the musical, the staff lines, the music, the scribe, and then that's a couple of other guilds. And then you have the painter who's using extremely expensive minerals uh, and organic pigments to paint and also gold. So the materials are then, so you have all these things that sort of are brought together, these like logistics, and they're organized in a very structured way. So there's not a lot of freedom to like have a little loose blue brush stroke over here because you're measuring every single like uh, fraction of an ounce of lapis that you're using and so on. So unfortunately, I don't see a ton of room for creativity here, but as I say that, you go up to the space and you see anything Pacino's touched has this really psychedelic feeling to me, and it makes me always think, like, is Pacino a mystic himself? Is he somebody who fell out of an order, or it was a sort of a lay member of an order? I'm not sure. So it's a great question. It's one that, like, begs asking and answering, and one that we have to keep digging at and, and trying to figure out. But certainly artists are having a say here, and what it says to me is that there is a dialogue, but the nature of that dialogue is unclear to me, but I think it's very new, and that's why it's not documented. Uh, Thank you. Uh, My question is actually about, again, about the altar piece that was altered. Um, Was it done during the um, Savonarella time? the which um, the altar piece uh, oh during uh, oh, the life of yeah. yeah I'm not you'll have to it's 15th century so I'm, you have to remind me of the life dates of Savonarola yeah so we're, we're looking at uh, he died in um, the end of uh, around 1495 yeah so yeah, so, yeah roughly yeah, so it, it, I mean the debates are starting right so so you have a number of, of things happening that that uh are, are all coming together. Um, on the one hand, you have, uh, uh, you've had a turn in the climate and in the, um, the health condition, the general health condition of the European population. So, so there's a lot more disease, a lot more illness. So, so it, it, at the level of just basic experience, life is falling apart. So there, there's, there's, this is going on. So the kind of success that Florence is enjoying here has ended. 
at the same time, uh, precisely some of the changes that I've been talking about are starting to bear fruit in unforeseen ways. So somebody like Savonarola wants to take the next step in a direction that is very, very challenging. So again, the religious unity is breaking down because you have, uh, for example, uh, at the University of Paris, you have the rise of a nominalist approach to theology where um, what you affirm in faith is much more a question of your will than of your reason. Um, you, have the, you have divisions of positions and so on, uh, splits in positions growing. At the same time, you have rulers, political rulers, wanting to assert their autonomy and using things like local culture and religion to, to build boundaries rather than to bridge division. So, so I mean, th th this is a period of time where... Uh, uh, Yeah, I mean, it, it, Savonarola is kind of the symptom of this whole kind of breakdown and responses to him with violence, which couldn't have been imagined at this time. I mean, there, there is violence in the Middle Ages, but, but it's, it's seen as a last resort, uh, whereas later on, there's just going to be this explosion of, of using violent solutions to, to remedy challenges or to overcome challenges Uh, and division. Um, anyway, so... Hi, so, can I just uh, interject? Isn't sure. this when also Martin Luther was breaking away from the, uh, the Catholic Church and the whole Northern European faction was, was coming into its own, saying we don't agree with the Catholic Church? L so, Luther is just a little bit later. He's one of the fruits of, he is, of this. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. that was starting, that, that impetus or that yeah. germ was starting yeah. as well. That's correct. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I just want to say just briefly that Marilyn, who just asked that question, was the very uh, talented designer who uh, actually designed much of the show that you see upstairs. So for those of you who see Marilyn... <laughs> I think we have somebody up here, uh, Kathleen. Oh. All right, we'll, we'll get there soon. Will it be possible to uh, please go to the uh, portrait of St. Francis? Back to the beginning, yeah, sure. sure. Yes, and I've noticed that he's showing the stigmatas in his hands. And was this painting done as soon as the bishop clothed him? And is there a relationship in, in time between... No, the stigmata are later. So, but this... Painting is being done before this matters, isn't it? No, this no. this is a, this is much later than Francis. Francis is the beginning of the 13th, and this is being done in the 14th by Giotto. So, so the cult of Francis has actually grown by leaps and bounds by then, and and he's become uh, a heroic figure. Uh, so no, so he's being represented as he was if you will, in his perfection at the end of his life. After, so after the choice of poverty, but also after the stigmata by which he's known to be an imitator of Christ. Yeah, so you, you, you hit the nail on the head. Who's paying for it? The church had lots of money. Everybody had lots of money. 
I mean, the point is that this flowering happens because everyone's paying for it in essence. I mean, yeah. everyone is investing in this visual manifestation of their faith and of the changing moment, right? So, as I mentioned, there's a new middle class that's buying art, and they're buying art that they thinks they think in a way will bring them closer to the church as well. And people are careful, especially the wealthy patrons are careful to commission really grand altarpieces to align themselves again in the church. They buy altarpieces, put them in major churches as a way of showing that they, like the church, are powerful as well. So there's an interesting sort of ideological power play that goes on here. And so it's an interesting moment where it's not just the church producing artworks for use in the church, but it's those going to church, redefining the way they see the world and the artworks they put in the church, kind of ex ex exerting their own power over the church or within the church. And then there's people making art for their homes, which is a first, so that they maybe don't even have to go to church to do what they're used to doing. So if you were ever to come to one of our little tours of the medieval collection, we always end with... Uh, the, the, if you go down to the Thompson collection, you'll see these wonderful prayer beads um, and, and also these, these diptychs and triptychs, which are portable. They're not the big ones for the church, but they're actually for me to have when I'm traveling or when I'm at home for my own devotion, my own prayer. So a merchant pays for religious goods for his own, as we put it in terms of the Laudario page, his own unmediated, immediate experience of God in his daily life. And, and is willing to pay big to, to have that. And eventually this leads to sort of the Reformation to Savonarola and to Martin Luther who finally say, like, enough is enough, guys. Like, we stand for something and being, having things sheathed in gold isn't what we stand for. So there's a big reaction against it and the pendulum swings back. And then the church is the only one paying for it again because they need to build themselves up again visually. So it's this interesting, like this historical swing back and forth and it's interesting that art it ends up being sort of the front line where this battle is fought which is really fascinating and who's paying for it is often like the indicator of what's going on who sort of has has the cards to play at the table kind of kind of thing Um, I think there's still some of that, but what you're describing is something that is truer of the beginning of the 13th century. So um, until uh, the Dominicans are sort of recognized in 1210, the 12, 1215, uh, in 1215 the Fourth Lateran Council recognizes the existence of the Dominicans and commissions them as uh, general preachers and general confessors for the whole church. So they can go anywhere and preach on their own authority anywhere in, in the world and hear confessions on their own authority anywhere in the world. So the Dominicans at that point begin to amass a wealth of practical, moral, and ethical experience that leads to a transformation of how the church deals with the, the life of the merchant. So that by the time somebody like Thomas Aquinas starts writing, he can include in his theology the reality of profit 
as something that's okay, that's not immediately uh, tied to usury. So, so at the beginning of the 12th century, or 13th century, you see the church preaching against the merchant life because it can only understand it with the category of usury. By 1250s, 1270s, uh, there's a whole series of, of guidelines for what represents legitimate profit and what represents usury. So by the time we get to this, this period, there's been a whole practice of the merchant life being an acceptable way of life. Now, it is true that for some still, there's an awareness that I fall in that category of usury, not legitimate profit. And there is that sense of I've got to do something to, to make up for that. One of the things we need to understand is that this is not, it's not so much as out of a sense of shame or guilt, but out of a sense of justice. So, so the idea of justice at this time is still the idea that I have introduced disorder into the cosmos, and I have to do something to, to kind of push back against that disorder, to, to make something right, to restore the rightness. And making a gift to the church is understood as an act of praise. So in my illegitimate profit, I stole something from God and neighbor. In donating something to the church, I'm giving something that makes up for that to God and to neighbor. Others will see it. Others will be moved to prayer. I'm contributing to the conversion of others. But what's interesting about that as well is that there's this sort of ideal practice, but Uh then there's also a way of painting yourself as an ideal so that, you know, you come into a church like Santa Maria Novella and you as a noble person who's sponsored a chapel there paints an image of the Last Judgment and paints yourself in identifiably in that on the right side of the spectrum, right? (laughs) And so you're doing that maybe because you want to contribute back and you, you know, you want to show that you're, you know, you're aligning yourself with your church and your faith, but you're also doing it because you know everyone's talking about you because you're one of the wealthiest families in Florence and that you probably don't do bad things sometimes and take advantage of people or, or, or the economy so that you can sort of write the story of yourself through this imagery because you know people are pouring through the church and will see it all the time and associate with you, you with, that, with that, that goodness. So it's interesting that art becomes a way to negotiate your faith, but also a way to manipulate your perception. And uh, it's, it's a fascinating balance there. First, thank you very much for your presentation. It's been wonderful. Uh, my question is a, a, one of simple curiosity. In the exhibit, there are a number of depictions of the nativity. And my recollection is that in all or most of them, Joseph is sleeping or, <laughs> or appears to be snoozing. Um, is that tip of just of this time that that's how he's portrayed or... Is there some particular reason why during this time he's portrayed that way? I found it quite amusing. Well, it's a good question. It's something I actually meant to ask you, so maybe I'll ask you now. (laughs) Is that there's an apocryphal text, and I'm not sure what it is offhand, at this moment where Joseph has some resentment after 
the Annunciation. And when he finds this out, he feels sort of left out. He feels resentment towards Mary, and he goes into a separate room and sort of sulks. So there are that that manifests itself in an iconography of Joseph sulking in a room by himself after he finds out his wife is having someone else's baby. So kind of this like really human reaction to this moment, and. Uh, it, it's in some of the manuscripts. So when we were conditioned reporting them, you can see it and you're like, wow, I've never seen so many of these it being so prolific at, at a particular moment. And keep in mind, I mean, this is sort of a trite parallel, but Florence is growing fast, its population. I mean, the notion of procreation is a huge, something on everyone's mind. There's an image of the pregnant virgin in the show uh, from the Getty altarpiece. So I meant to ask you, Gilles, what's going on? <laughs> well, it, as far as I know, it's not uh, unique to the period. Uh, I, I, I have seen in the Middle Ages representations of Joseph like this. That story is around. I think it's a wonderful story myself because it is such a human reaction. You know, he's going to have to work out what it means to be a foster parent. Yeah, it's like a cuckold, You know, yeah. and that's not easy. Um, uh, so. So, so it's, it's there. But I think you're right that it really, it, it really does proliferate at this time. Why that is, I'm not sure, other than to say, sort of my intuition is, again, precisely because um, human experience is becoming something we're studying and probing for religious meaning, then this becomes a very interesting situation to probe. And so it's going to get represented. But beyond saying something like that, I'm not sure I can say... Yeah, I don't think I can say that. Well, and I will say that it's a really astute observation, and I think it's something that... Uh, this period tends to be pretty, like, si siloed. So manuscript scholars study their stuff, panel painters study their stuff, and this is the first time that a show like this mixes panel painting and manuscripts in such an extensive way. Um, I mean, exhibitions have done it before, but to really focus on a city at a moment. And you see, like, these really simple, what seem obvious things are popping out to us that we've not studied before because we haven't really um, interrogated across media because we're too busy thinking in our different fields of study. So I, I really appreciate that you brought that up. Thanks. So we have time for one last question. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Thank you, <Yeah>. Marilyn. <laughs> Hi. Um, I would just like to make a comment. I'm more educated in the Eastern tradition in iconography, and I thank you as well for the exhibit because it opened my eyes to the fact that I'm really undereducated on the early Renaissance, which it will be a lot of catching up for me. But um, in terms of Joseph's reaction to the birth of Christ... Thank you, the, Galina. That will be... Yes. In the Eastern tradition, in iconography, the way... Joseph is also depicted as being aside, not exactly engaging in what's going on, sulking, as you pointed. Um, but he's also being depicted as being tempted by Satan. And the, the meaning of that is that Satan is trying to induce the thought that, oh, you should just give up. This is going to be way too difficult to handle. Huh. 
So Joseph, Joseph is basically torn between dedicated, dedicating his life to, to this ultimately uncertain fate of his wife and um, child and just fleeing, basically. So um, I think the figure of Satan makes it a little bit more clear. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. Well, Thank you, Galina. That's really, really helpful. Thank you. And I think this link between East and West is also one of these things that we've underexplored in the field of Western art history and that you'll see up there. I mean, people point out often the sort of almond-shaped eye, this kind of these textiles that seem to be coming directly from the East. And people are looking to me often to say, well, what is it? Like, what's the connection? And the thing is that we're not sure. Is it as simple as the Silk Road was open? All the pigments were coming from there. So is this about cultural exchange? And I think... The same goes for the relationship with Eastern um, Christianity. So thanks again. Okay, at this point, I think we're going to have to call it a night. I sense that there are more questions in the audience, which to me is always a sign of a really brilliant talk. So thank you, Sasha and Gilles, for all the insights you shared with us here. It was wonderful. And thanks, Kathleen. And I may see some of you here in two weeks' time for our next lecture on this topic. George Dameron is speaking on Florence in the time of Dante and Giotto. So hope you can make it. Good night.